This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Sure, I have my content ready. I got um, so much content for today. You have a lot of content to bring to the podcast today. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Fox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me as usual, my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. And I'm pumped. We've got a great episode for you. Uh, Ezra, pumped. Ezra is promising double the content of a regular episode, but I don't think we want to make it twice as long. So we're going to just try to speak really, really quickly. Have big good, ideas real The information fast. density is going to be amazing. Off the charts. Off the charts. In um, one chart. It won't even fit in a chart. So less chit-chat. More content. More weeds. So I'm excited about this uh, episode of The Weeds because it comes out on the day of a piece I've been working on for months about productivity and technology and the economy and, and, and basically why isn't all of the technology we see around us changing the way we work. Um, Close listeners of The Weeds know that we did uh, an episode on productivity and technology a couple months ago. I'm going to try to not repeat what we said there. And and I really want to talk about a different part of this, not the mismeasurement hypothesis about whether or not uh, productivity is really super high and we're just not noticing it. I I don't think that's true. I think we explained why it isn't true on on our last episode. You can read my article for more on it. I want to talk about what would be required at this point for all this technology to show up in the economy? What would be required for us to see an economic boom that matches our intuitions about what's going on around us? And the the idea for this article for me was actually triggered by something Larry Summers said. He gave a speech at a 2015 Hamilton Project or 2013 Hamilton Project event. And he basically said there's this great mystery to him that we see all this technology all around us, but we do not see it in our economic statistics. And so I began looking into this in some detail and talking to a lot of economists who study productivity, talking to a lot of Silicon Valley types who think that everything we're doing is great, talking to Silicon Valley types who think that actually we're not inventing anything that is really changing our lives. The the numbers here are pretty clear. Uh, the, The big thing you want to look at is something called total factor productivity. And this is basically how much we make if you hold labor and capital constant. So it is the closest thing we have in economics to a measure of our ability to work smarter, of our ability to use innovations and technology to do more with the same amount that we already have. And in the 20th century, total factor productivity had this tremendous boom. And for the last 40 years, it's been growing at about a third of that rate. So that's a real drop. Um, There's a good White House uh, economic report about a year ago that said if productivity broadly had been growing at the same rate it did in the in the 20th century, the average American family would have 30,000 more uh, per family now. And that's a big number. Um, that's more than, as Matt, you pointed out in, a, in another article, that's more than if you sort of restructured our inequality uh, statistics. They would get about 9,000 if we had a much more equal society. 30,000 is a, is a really big gain. So this matters. So the fact that we are not pushing the economy forward as fast uh, on in terms of how much we make really matters. This has led into a very long and somewhat interesting argument about whether the inventions we're seeing now and probably are going to see in the future matter as much as a tremendous burst of innovation in the 20th century. Robert Gordon, who wrote The Rise and Fall of American Growth, which is a really interesting book, uh, makes the argument that they're not. And he talks about how in the 20th century, we had really all at once electrification, antibiotics, uh, indoor plumbing, cars, skyscrapers, you know, tremendous advances in education, tremendous advances in communication technology, telephones, sailboats, I mean, or steamships, I'm sorry. There's so much that we created all at once that he just thinks we're not going to see that again. I am going to just dodge that argument entirely because I don't think we have any real way of knowing what AI and driverless cars and advances in material sciences and bioengineering and, you know, CRISPR and gene hacking. I don't know. I don't think we know what that's going to mean in 50 years. The thing that I've become really interested in is more the kind of 10-year, 15-year time frame, which is a time frame that people need help in right now anyway. And there I've come to believe that we are not being held back by technology. We are being held back by our ability to implement technology. Uh, Tyler Cohen, the economist, put this pretty well to me when I was reporting the piece where he said that 
as he sees it, the information technology revolution, particularly the internet, is just beginning in the economy. He, he thinks we kind of have had a phase one where we added uh, the internet, again, IT capabilities as an add-on. So phase one is things like Best Buy getting a website where you can buy things or businesses targeting you in ads on Facebook. It's what they were already doing, but they've added an IT component. Phase two, in his view, is you have companies that are built from the ground up around, the, around IT capabilities, that everything about them, their organizational structure, their personnel, the, the, you know, their business model, everything is built to take advantage of this stuff, and that you can get much bigger productivity gains out of that. And here you think of something like Amazon, like Uber. You can imagine you know, if, if we were able to create real telemedicine, things that are in very fundamental ways could not have existed within the, the previous scenario. And that that is very hard and it's just beginning. And there's a lot of really, frankly, I think, interesting evidence and, and work around this. Um, at, at Andreessen Horowitz, which is a big venture capital firm, they've begun talking about this idea of funding full-stack startups. And for a long time, what they were funding were companies that went in and said that they were going to revolutionize one little piece of an industry. So they were going to come in and give taxis Uber-like technology, but they'd leave the driving to the taxis. Or they were going to come in and give you know retailers a website, but they're going to leave the actual logistics and fulfillment of orders to the retailers. And that the future is going to be these full stack startups that are from the ground up vertically integrated around uh, around information technology. Um, I'll, I'll end on this. The problem here, the reason this is really hard, is that it turns out that technology often is not the hardest problem when you're trying to rebuild industries. It's workflow, it's status quo bias, it is regulatory barriers, it is um, what customers have come to understand and expect. And healthcare, which we talk about a lot on the show, is a really good example of this. It's a huge part of the economy. We really do need to see some big productivity improvements there if we're going to be seeing uh, the, the economy driven forward. You know, but we and, and we've also solved some really big technical problems. There's no doubt that we have the technical capacity to have electronic health records. There's no doubt that we have the technical capacity to have telemedicine. My iPhone does FaceTime and that could easily replace 15 or 20 percent of doctor's visits. The problem is that we have very big regulatory barriers in this area. We have very big barriers in terms of customers and what they expect, what they want. They want to see a doctor in person. We have a lot of doctors who don't understand how to use a lot of this technology. And so you just see that there is the raw material for, for some big gains, but the actual um, work of making this technology into real companies that can revolutionize industries is really difficult. The thing I do not talk about at all in the article is what we would actually do on a policy level if we wanted to push this forward, if we really wanted to increase productivity and increase the ability of you know, companies to try to use technology to push their industries forward faster. And so I think that's the, the question I wanted to raise here on the weeds. So I want to pick up on the healthcare space, unsurprisingly. I am shocked to hear that. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> whoa, if true. Both as someone who writes about healthcare and as someone who has unfortunately been getting a lot of healthcare dealing with a foot injury for the past year. And one of the things, like, because I'm a healthcare nerd, I've been thinking about is just a lot of like the issues you raise, like this lack of technology that I know exists, but clearly does not exist in my doctor offices. So, you know, an example I would think of is online scheduling, for example. I know there are systems you can do online scheduling. I can do online scheduling at my yoga studio. Like this technology seems to exist. Or another example would be um, technology to download a record. I know when I go on my bank, for example, I can get my tax forms if I want there. I don't have to wait for them to come in the mail. And I don't think, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, this is especially expensive technology. I don't think this is like, you know, proprietary or hard to get. But the lack of a adoption in this space is just incredible. And one of the things I've, you know, as I've been thinking about this a lot, it seems to me that there would be an advantage for, um, you know, the medical system to adopt these technologies because I spend a lot of time on the phone calling people. So they have all these people who sit at front desks and I call them because I need a record and then I call them back because they didn't send me the record. And I spend a lot of time just calling people and talking to them on the phone and I don't really like it. And these people don't really seem to like me bothering them all the time. So there's a clear problem that I think is costing doctor offices money, that costs the medical system money, paying all these jobs for people to answer my phone calls and millions of other people's phone calls. Yet there hasn't – that doesn't seem to be enough to push towards adopting something different, that the 
incentive doesn't seem to be there. And I've been trying to think about why that is. And I was wondering if it's something specific to the structure of the healthcare system where a lot of times, you know, we don't shop for healthcare a lot. We're going, you know, I need an MRI. I probably won't need one for hopefully a good long while. So, you know, I don't shop around and see who has like online scheduling and who has downloadable records. I just go wherever my doctor tells me to go. And that's kind of where I end up. So, you know, maybe there's not an incentive because they don't see me as a repeat customer. But, you know, there are a lot of people who do use the healthcare system a lot. And, you know, you see this happening elsewhere, but healthcare, you know, which is one sixth of the American economy, it's just like not taken hold at all. And I, I don't know if there will be a consumer driven push towards that, or if, like you said, Ezra, like this is something that will have to happen through regulations, even though, you know, I see these reasons I would think these businesses would want to change, but don't actually see the change happening. So I feel like I've actually seen more change in this. I mean, this is anecdotes can get can get tricky here. But, you know, I've gotten over over the past several years, uh, healthcare at the retail clinic in the Walmart uh, down in Chinatown, which a is just like, that's a substantial organizational innovation at all that like Walmart has these nurses on staff, you can come see them. Um, They do online scheduling. Um, they do pretty good, you know, stuff about like emailing your information around, things like that. Uh, my dentist's office do online scheduling. They send me text messages to remind me that I should actually show up to the to the office, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, that's instances where, where this kind of adoption is happening. I do think that the um, small scale of a lot of healthcare providers holds back in, in terms of technology adoption that like infamously like restaurant websites are terrible, uh, whereas like a big national chain, right, like papajohns.com is a pretty good piece of technology infrastructure, like regardless of what you think about the pizza, like it's a good way to get some pizza to come to your house using the internet. Uh, and I think Domino's has like an emoji-based ordering system, but a small practice that's like a handful of doctors operating in one city doesn't necessarily have the... Not so much like recognize that it would be good to build some new IT infrastructure, but like feel like they have someone who knows how to find a guy who's going to not rip them off to go build it. But what strikes me, though, is that when we talk about productivity of the healthcare sector, um, we don't really want a larger quantity of healthcare to be provided with a greater volume of efficiency. What we want is for our ailments to be cured more rapidly. That's the way that like penicillin, right, was like a technology driver of healthcare because you had infections, then you would take this medicine and then you wouldn't anymore. Um, what's disappointing to me about about healthcare and technology, right? It's like, so my my knee hurt and I, I had to get some treatment for it. And I feel like I got that treatment in a pretty reasonably IT intensive way. But the answer turned out to be that what I needed to do for my knee was like stretch more, continue to exercise regularly, but do it with really, really careful form so I wasn't hurting my knee and also try to lose weight and like blah, 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 blah. It turns out I could have found out all that information with no doctor's interventions, right? It's just like general life health advice. But what I want is like on Star Trek, you know, Dr. Crusher would come with her little magic wand and would actually make my knee better. And we seem to have made very little progress on like helping people with some of these underlying issues. Um, and, And all the kind of communication window dressing like we could get telemedicine right but if the doctor can't fix you then like how how good is that facetime call well i i think you're giving the healthcare system slightly too little credit you know we do still see breakthrough drugs like one of the ones i would mention is a cure for hiv or for hepatitis c which was introduced onto the market like two years ago that's really revolutionary i'm glad they didn't cure aids without me knowing (laughs) well i know making some big news here on the weeds you know you did see a hepatitis c cure there's a lot of debate about how much it costs and i would argue the communication window dressing does matter because if you're like, let's say the magic wand exists, but you know, you have to fax a bunch of records around to get access to the max magic wand. And I will like, it appears to me in my experience, the medical industry is keeping the fax machine industry alive. <laughs> I've never been asked for a fax number as much as I have dealing with medical offices. But you know, the communications window dressing, it, it, it 
matters for access to the wand. It matters if you're actually going to get there, if you're going to be able to get the appointment or if you're going to be leaving these messages and inboxes and not hearing back, or you're going to be like faxing documents back and forth. In my view, it isn't just window dressing. It's actually part of, you know, making the healthcare system work for people. Well, let me suggest two things. I actually think you're both right on this. One is that I really do agree with what Sarah said, that one of the places where we could have some real advances are in the low-touch access that could be given, just very basic diagnostic advice. Um, I, I think that one of the things that you begin to believe if you study healthcare over a long period of time is that a lot of the biggest gains come from the simplest advice that a nurse practitioner can get you, I think, basically 80% of what our healthcare system can really get you, particularly in terms of things like prevention. And so particularly in areas that are more rural, particularly for people who you know maybe don't have a regular doctor, I'm a really big fan of things like the Walmart. I don't remember if it's technically the minute clinic, but the, the sort of Walmart clinics, the Target clinics, I think that stuff is really good for that, that same reason of access. Um, and I do think that can lead to, lead to some real gains in health. The other thing, Matt, that you're talking about, which is I'm I'm a little bit more on on your side of this than actually on on yours, Sarah. My understanding is that there's been a deterioration in the number of blockbuster drugs we're seeing in recent years. Certainly, we're getting fewer effective antibiotics, and there's a very worrying rise in drug resistance. We're seeing less gains in life expectancy than we did in in much of the 20th century. And people really argue back and forth about whether or not we are in a sort of period before things like gene therapy and biohacking and all these other sort of nouveau technologies end up leading some really big gains or not. But but to your point, Matt, about productivity in the in the health sector, I do think this is this is important um, because it's an important part of this whole argument, whether we're talking about healthcare or not. A lot of big gains for economy-wide productivity end up having a deflationary aspect on a very specific sector. So you could definitely imagine a world in which we invented a health pill. And that health pill basically cures you of all ailments and makes sure you live a healthy life until 95. That pill costs $100. And so all of a sudden, there'd be a lot less money in in the healthcare sector. And uh, you would look at that and say, well, there's less going into GDP. You're having all these people out of jobs. But in theory, what would happen then is rather than spending a lot of money and a lot of time on useless knee treatments and waiting around talking to receptionists and doctor's offices, we would end up spending a lot of time and a lot of money on other more productive things. So a lot of the productivity advances end up not showing up so much in one sector's contribution to GDP as they do in, in overall GDP. That's one way to think about these broader arguments about mismeasurement. Um, something that comes up that people talk about is Google Maps, how, you know, when you bought a Garmin GPS system, that showed up in the productivity statistics because, like, that was a cash transfer. I use Google Maps all the time. It's incredibly valuable to me, but I don't pay directly for it at all. I mean, Google is tracking advertising data. I mean, they're getting something out of it, but it, there's clearly a lot of consumer surplus there. But Google Maps is, in theory, getting me places faster. They're getting me places more reliably. That should show up in other kinds of productivity. In theory, I'm doing more meetings or I'm making a connection I wouldn't have otherwise made or, or, or whatever it might be. The, the, great, the reason cars and airplanes were so good for the economy wasn't just because we built and sold cars and airplanes, but because of other things that happened. And we're not seeing a lot of that happening. So I do think you're right to point out that you don't want to focus too much on industry-specific productivity. You want to be thinking about economy-wide productivity. And it's one reason I'm not particularly sympathetic to the argument that we're not seeing these productivity gains because all this stuff is free. Um, it is true that things like Google and Facebook and some of these communication technologies are very low cost or they are, are or they are free. But if they're really doing so much, then the fact that we can costlessly communicate and collaborate, a drug researcher in America can so easily communicate with a drug researcher in Shanghai, should be leading to more new drug discoveries. The fact that it's not is suggesting that that finding these things has become, uh, in a lot of ways, more difficult. But I do just want to put a bit of a point on the table. The thing that I really came away believing is that we do not think hard enough in a macroeconomic way about organizational culture. We do not like, I don't think I very much don't feel like I have a good handle on regulations in the healthcare space or really in, in, in any space. You hear a lot of complaining about that. And then sometimes you hear good responses to those complaining, but I don't know that it's something that any of us have a great handle on. And 
this is a real question to me of whether or not there are ways that government can actually be productive here, or this is just going to be a extended period of time as you know one generation of of workers retires, one generation of consumers ages out, and the next generation you know has companies and workers and CEOs and customers who are more friendly to these kinds of products and innovations. Because you know to go back to the healthcare example, I think a lot of the reason a lot of these doctors' offices do not do heavy IT is that the doctors themselves don't know how to do it. A lot of their customers don't know how to do it. And nobody wants to switch. Yeah, I had a sort of a, a question about that, Sarah. Is like how my impression is that a lot of healthcare is going to like old people, right? Who probably don't really want to use cutting edge technology. Well, at least, yes, a lot of healthcare is going to old people. I think that sounds like an accurate um, assessment. In terms of their use of technology, that part I'm not sure about, honestly. I don't know. I don't know how much opportunity they're being given to adopt new technology. How much I mean, in general, though, you know, if you look at, like, what's the demographics of Vox readers, you're like, you're not surprised to see, like, a drop off in the 60s and 70s relative to print, right? We don't sit around being like, what's going on? We're like, well, old people like old stuff. Sure, but I think you, <laughs> you know, my grandfather has an iPhone. Like he, he has a smartphone that he can like somewhat use. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't write off just saying, oh, healthcare is for old people. And like, that's why it's not being adopted. And you do have like, you know, not old people definitely do use more healthcare, but like a sizable, like we've all gone to the doctor, like, you know, you've had your knee stuff and I have my foot stuff. And like there is, you know, especially if you look around like a waiting office in like downtown D.C., you see a lot of young people um, using the health, a lot of Vox reader, age people using the healthcare system. But yeah, I'm interested in, you know, Ezra's idea, like what is the policy response for this? I mean, so far it's been kind of this regulation scheme um, on electronic medical records, which we've also talked about on an episode of The Weeds, where you essentially have um, something called meaningful use, which is kind of the standard the federal government uses to measure, you know, how good are hospitals and doctors at using electronic uh, medical records and their stages in meaningful use. I don't exactly remember what's associated with each stage, but, you know, you have meaningful use one, two, three. It's a program that's been going on for a number of years. And like when you look at charts on this, you see kind of lines going up of um, adoption of electronic records. But uh, one of the things, you know, I think you might see it on the back end, the patient facing side is a part that's not really as as there. So doctors can like enter stuff in, they can pull up their record when you get there. But your ability to kind of like log into that record and like get a doctor's note or get um, a scan is less diffuse. And this is all through incentives programs. So you, you get a Medicare bonus essentially if you can meet these targets. And at some point you start getting docked from your Medicare payments. And that's generally the way in, in healthcare we've incentivized things. We've kind of paid for performance. We pay you, you know, if you adopt a certain technology, if you keep your patients healthy, there's a lot of pay for performance schemes. Um, but there's also a lot of really mixed research on if that's actually working. And I think it does suggest a space, I don't know exactly what the right response is, for thinking about the way we push technology change. I think mostly about healthcare, but maybe it's applicable to other places where we're finding pay for performance doesn't always work as strongly as we'd like it to and suggesting a need for other ways to think about, like, how do we encourage this behavior we want people to engage in, but, you know, is not diffusing as well, the way we'd one, like. One specific policy thing that was done relatively recently that strikes me as a little counterproductive in this regard is the um, the medical loss ratio rule, which says that basically insurance companies – it sort of puts a cap on the profitability of health insurance companies uh, under the, the Affordable Care Act. It says they have to pay out, I forget what it was, is it 85%? 85%, yeah. Yeah, so 85% of incoming revenue to a health insurance company has to go out in terms of like billing claims. In, in terms of medical claims. Yeah. It can't go out in terms of administration or advertising or anything right. like it, that. It has, it has to go as like payments out to providers. And the the policy rationale for this, like, I think is pretty clear. I, I think the political upside is very clear. Um, but if you think in 
like cold hearted economic terms, right? About like why do big players really do the hard work that Ezra is talking about, right? If technology was magic, then it's like something new comes, you'd say like let's adopt it, it's better. But but it's not magic. It's hard. It's it's hard to get people to use new technology in ways that really do like drive efficiencies and drive savings. And the reason you might do all that hard work is to cut your costs and increase your profits. Um, and the way society as a whole sees the benefits is like first one company comes in, cuts costs and increases profits, but then one of their competitors, you know, also has to adopt it and prices start to go down and, and the public starts to gain. By making it difficult for insurance companies to raise their profitability, I think you have blunted some of the the instinct to do that. And then there's a thing that I don't understand at all called accountable care organizations. <laughs> ACOs. We should do an episode on one ACOs. Of my, one that of my I think is acronyms. meant to accomplish what I'm saying. The medical loss ratio hurts. I don't really understand what it is. But the idea is that somehow some other aspect of the legal and regulatory system is supposed to... Uh, push insurance companies to become more integrated and more thoughtful. But it seems to me that like the main way you would do that is by saying, if you find a way to become much more efficient, you'll be much more profitable. And we've kind of made that illegal. But to focus on on one thing you said, which is about new entrants coming in and uh, out-competing basically incumbents and then f- either forcing the incumbents to respond by, by updating the way they do their work or by actually going out of business. So one thing that's been influential in my thinking of this is Chad Syverson, who's an economist at, at Chicago, at U of Chicago, and, and others have noted that we've seen patterns like this before. The electrification era had a period of time when electricity seemed to be all of a sudden everywhere, but wasn't showing up in productivity. Then there was about a decade-long productivity burst as this sort of initial corporate and, and business and commercial users got into it. Then there was another lag. Um, so, so far, it's showing almost exactly the same pattern as uh, IT. But then you saw another gigantic burst. And that, that second burst came when companies basically rebuilt themselves or founded themselves based off of it. Instead of just putting an electric motor into something, you rebuilt your factory around electricity. And like one neat thing about that was that compared to steam factories, say, you could build horizontally as opposed to just vertically. Um, and there are all things that, that all kinds of things that emerged out of that. You know, one thing that, that you do see people talk about here is whether there are reasons to believe that it has become harder for new players to to outcompete incumbents in some of these industries than it was at, at other points in economic history. So, you know, particularly when we talk about health and education, these are really, really, really highly regulated sectors. To some degree, um, there, there, there are a lot of others like that, but those are so big. I think it really matters. Now, a point you've made to me, Matt, is that we have different regulatory schemas in other countries, and it's not like we see very different productivity uh, numbers in other countries. This kind of slowdown that we're in appears to be something we're seeing across you know, all uh, most advanced economies, pretty much all advanced economies, I believe. And so that is a reason to think it, it isn't regulation. But I, I guess like the, the broad question is, do you think there's reason to believe that it is harder to start a company that, that grows into a real player now than it was at other points? I could really, I feel like, make that argument both ways in a lot of these sectors. Um, you know, the ability for people to know your company exists is tremendously greater than it ever was before. The ability for people to sometimes try it out in a low friction way, particularly when it's digital, is higher than ever before. But you also have these blockades. You also have the the friction of switching things. And, and that seems to me to be the mechanism you would be looking for. And if that mechanism is breaking down, and we do see in parts of the economy, there's less new firm formation than there has been at other times. Uh, then I think that should make us pretty worried. Yeah. Well, and I actually think you should look at healthcare and education separately in this regard, because even though it's true that the formal education sector is very regulated, the closely adjacent sector of telling people information about things and helping them know how to do things is like not regulated at all. Mm -hmm. So I think you would actually notice if there was some like awesome rogue teaching operation that was like kicking ass and a million times better than the official schools, right? Like, yeah. like in a really clear way. And to some extent it is, right? So it's like you Podcasting can look. Podcasting is great. <laughs> you also like today I can look up anything I want on Wikipedia. 
right? 20 years ago, you couldn't, right? So like that's pretty like clear cut kind of advance in the like learning space, right? Even if schools are different. But health, like, I mean, there's just a fixed number of uh, new doctors minted every year, right? Fixed number of new doctors, but you see like more nurse practitioners, more PAs. Right. Like I actually see when I look at the primary care space, uh, I feel like I see a lot of new entrants there, like the retail clinics. Matt talked about you have um, kind of this sort of concierge light service, one medical that's been like popping up in most urban areas. And they're really they're one of the ones I've been impressed with, but they really seem to be like almost like this idea of like a full stack startup where they think about primary care very differently. A lot of their technology exists in like a mobile app. You download, I will, I guess I should disclose I'm a one medical member. So I've used their services and, um, I am too. And I've been less impressed recently. Oh, really? I mean, well, <laughs> so now, you know, we're not being paid by one medical because <laughs> we also have complaints. Um, but I have been impressed with, you know, online scheduling that I get emailed all my test results that I can text my provider if I want to, that stuff all feels very smooth. It's when I think the divide that I see in healthcare. It's like when you step up a level above that basic primary care where you, for some, you don't see as much new entrance. Like you don't see someone like trying to disrupt the world of like, um, like, or like, um, like orthopedic surgery or something by offering, like using new technology with patients that there's almost a split. And maybe it has to do with people using primary care more regularly. So like you have more of a reason to shop. You kind of like use these services more than once. You decide on what you like. You tell your friends about it. Whereas if you look at more specialty care, there's probably less space for like word of mouth referrals. You're not using it as much. So maybe you're not as interested in kind of finding the best experience. You just need to find the experience once versus use it repeatedly. I think it is really noticeable in medicine that like the surgery space is incredibly fast to adopt new technology. Like they're fucking firing proton beams at you. And then somebody was writing down what they did on a sheet of paper, putting it in a manila folder and giving it to your mother. And then faxing it somewhere. (laughs) It's just, sorry, I I don't mean to, it's just like, I find it really weird the difference in like the people who treat well, you. So they adopt new technology. surgical tools. Yes. Yeah, really right. The question there, right, is like it does show there's a difference between like new technology in the sense of here is a thing that is different from the previous thing and productivity gains in the sense of like here is a new thing that is clearly and demonstrably superior to the old thing in a lot of ways. And and this goes back to what I was saying about about cures. I mean, obviously there have been some genuine advances in in surgical techniques, but like what we haven't seen is the new medical instrument that means that surgery for lower back pain is now really effective and reliable. And and like that's a big problem. A, A lot of people suffer from low back pain. A lot of people spend money on medical treatments for low back pain. The treatments are not very effective. They are not very reliable because there's a lot of money in that space. There is investment and like, quote unquote, innovation, but there isn't like progress toward the world in which uh, people don't have back pain. And, And as Ezra was saying, I think you would expect to see not just, you know, sales of the low back pain cure driving GDP, but actually you would have like more people in work. You would have a wider range of things people could do. You would have fewer people uh, with their lives less, ruined by opioid addiction. You'd have less addiction. back chain spending because people would be out doing other things. Right. But like but like, I would think like a tangibly better world since this is a quite widespread medical problem that is, it doesn't kill people. And leads to people no longer being able to work and being on disability. And, and just like not working as, as effectively as they could. And while we see a lot of like new surgical kind of gizmos, we're not like – Breaking through those barriers. Speaking of breaking through those barriers, I think we should take a break and then come back to talk a little bit about the political revolution. Political revolution. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel things. 
things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. Political revolution. Okay, uh, there have been a lot of complaints, uh, you know, sort of emanating from Bernie Sanders' campaign and even more so from the kind of larger Bernie-verse um, about, you know, various ways in which the system is rigged, they say. And and you've heard complaints about superdelegates. You've heard a lot of complaints about Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, and I think you've also seen, including on Vox, a, a lot of debunkings of sort of the strong versions of these claims. And, and they are wrong. I mean... Sanders simply has fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. And if you look at some of the things that that Sanders people are really fired up about, like that there were a, a pretty substantial number of people stricken from the, the voting rolls in Brooklyn but before the New York primary, um, Brooklyn was a very, very heavily pro-Clinton county, one of the most heavily pro-Clinton counties uh, in, in the North. Um, and so that was a genuinely bad thing that happened, uh, election administration error, but it probably hurt her rather than helped her. And similarly, the superdelegates strike me as a weird idea, but in point of fact are the only reason Sanders is still in the game, not not something that's, that's rigging against him. But I wanted to look at a sort of a, you know, a more generous view of like where this sentiment comes from, from, from Sanders type people and, and worked with a, a coworker, uh, Jeff Stein, who is uh, younger and a, a little, a little closer to the, the emotional center of gravity of, of Bernie Brodom. And, you know, what, what I came down on is back in the, in the wild days of 2015, when it was widely thought that party elites uh, controlled nomination processes, <laughs> it would have seemed unsurprising to say that, like, look, what happened here is that a network of party elites, like including the elected officials and superdelegates, but also importantly, including uh, interest group leaders and, you know, actors in left of center politics had decided that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee and were acting in a coordinated way to make that happen. And that that meant that Sanders has been fighting on an unlevel playing field this this whole time, which I really think he is. And I think a, a really key example of that is things like the labor union, SEIU, um, whose policy agenda, uh, Bernie, like, supports quite loyally, always has. Uh, same thing with the American Federation of Teachers. These are two of the, the biggest labor unions in America, and even more critically, two of the most politically active unions in America. And they have been out there actively campaigning for Hillary Clinton, not really on the basis of any kind of issues disagreement with Sanders, but as part of their own big picture political game that the leaders of those organizations and, and the um, Ask Me as well, the uh, uh, state and local government workers union. And, and you saw a, a more sort of media prominent example of this when Planned Parenthood went and vocally endorsed Hillary Clinton, even though Sanders is a 100% rock solid Planned Parenthood voting record. So then Sanders gets asked about this. It's like, how come Planned Parenthood is against you? So then he has to say something. And what he comes up with is, well, you know, they're part of the political establishment, um, which I think is true in any common sense reading of it. But then you have all these people up and going like, aha, he's attacking this important feminist organization as the establishment. And it was like a like a bad news cycle for for Sanders, not because Sanders is like not left wing on abortion rights, but just because, you know, the people who matter had gotten together and decided they were going to do what it takes to make Hillary Clinton the nominee. That's not to say anyone cheated, right? I mean, you are entitled as the head of a labor union or the head of an interest group organization to, you know, do what you think is right to advance your issues and advance your agenda. And it happens to be the case that what the heads of major labor unions, feminist groups, LGBT groups think will help advance them is to um, 
not have Bernie Sanders be the Democratic nominee, even though Bernie Sanders has a good voting record on their issues. They don't think he would be the strongest uh, person in that job. But you can understand how grassroots supporters, particularly the highly engaged ones who can like see what's going on but are not significant enough to stop it or in any way participate in the decision making process, find it very, very, very frustrating. So I think everything you say here is broadly correct. But I want to offer a different interpretation of this that because I, I, I think this is a really important point and it's something that speaks in very deep ways to the politics of Clinton and Sanders and is worth, I think, interrogating a little bit more. I would frame this differently. I would say that the Democratic Party establishment is a constituency. It's a constituency really like any other constituency. It has different powers, but it has but it has people and you win over those people and you try to get them to vote for you and you do that by making them promises and by displaying electability and by building relationships and all the other things that, that, that build uh, political support. This is a constituency that in a million ways Hillary Clinton has been campaigning to win over for decades now. She's been out there raising money for them. She's been working with them. She's been showing up at their events. She's been uh, she she's been speaking to them. She's been building deep relationships. She's been doing all the things that, that that win you over. She's been understanding how to talk about their issues. And Bernie Sanders has, while he has been in many cases supportive of Democratic Party policies of a lot of these interest groups' agendas. He has not just not campaigned for their support over the course of his career. He has actively rejected them. Um, his brand is being a political independent. He famously did not join the Democratic Party until this election cycle. He has made a big deal, including in interviews with Vox, of the fact that he's not a Democrat. He uses that as a very key selling point for him where he will go out and say that he is not going to do what past Democratic presidents like Bill Clinton, like Barack Obama have done and kind of sell you out because he is not in hawk to the Democratic Party establishment that is is corrupted by money and spends its time with Wall Street, you know, millionaires, millionaires and billionaires and 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 generally has so disappointed so many liberals and so many independents. And Sanders, this is not a dumb move. He has gained a tremendous amount of value from being able to demonstrate his independence from the Democratic Party establishment. Um, it is one reason he so appeals to liberals and, and to independent and to, to liberal leaning independents. I don't think that's unfair. But by the same token, the flip of that, that as part of rejecting the democratic establishment, he doesn't have much support of them, also does not feel to me to be unfair. And I think this really matters because I don't think this is just a popularity contest. And I and with the exception of the way Debbie Wasserman Schultz has run the DNC during this period, which I think is really problematic and certainly the way they limited debates and, and other things, I think is pretty deplorable actually. But but putting that aside, the the, the raw question of endorsements of you know uh, of, of influence of interest group you know backing that that stuff is all I think very much on the level. And the reason I think the different paths they took mattered is this. Your ability, a president's ability to attract and build real coalitions and deep coalitions of support among allies is actually a really important skill for that president to have. Jimmy Carter famously had a very bad relationship with the congressional Democrats and it really hamstrung his agenda. By the, by, in the opposite way, Barack Obama, despite being a real newcomer to, to, to politics, he had staffed himself with a lot of uh, top congressional staff from Tom Daschle and Dick Parts offices, and he was able to use those relationships to get unprecedented party loyalty on things like Obamacare, which is the only reason they passed. And so, one thing, one question I think that the Sanders campaign really raises, the, the, the theory of political revolution really raises, is how important do you think the ability to play that inside game is? Part of Bernie Sanders' argument is that he is not going to be, he is not going to play the inside game, he is not going to be corrupted by the inside game, and he's going to leave an ex, he's going to lead an external political revolution that will accomplish his goals. Hillary Clinton's argument, as demonstrate, which she demonstrates in terms of building this broad base of support, is that she will be excellent at working with. With key power players, and that's why she will be able to accomplish her goals. And so, I definitely get to your point, Matt, why it it, it feels unfair to some Sanders supporters. But 
to me, when I look at this, it is a strategic choice Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have made. They've made opposite choices. Those opposite choices actually tell you a lot about how they would govern and help clarify the choice here. And it feels very fair. And the fact that, you know, if Hillary Clinton's choice pays off more than Bernie Sanders did, I think that's actually telling and and sort of part of the gamble they were both making, not um not 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 some sort of way in which the primary was. Uh, was unfair, shouldn't be seen as legitimate. And I think you see another version of this on the Republican side where you have kind of Trump almost in a way making the same bet that Sanders did and seeing that bet pay off. And, you know, I see that. And I think Andrew Prokop on our side, who's written a lot of great stuff about this, is kind of a decent amount of evidence in Obama's own campaign in 2008, you know, of the ability to kind of break that even though there are barriers kind of upstart candidates, that they're certainly not insurmountable in ways we might have thought them to be. Maybe, you know, three or four election cycles um, ago, you you know, you had Trump saying, you know, earlier in this election cycle, that the process is rigged, that I won by this much, that, you know, I didn't get it. And then, you know, I think this was in one of our videos, maybe, where, you know, he said, you know why I don't say that anymore? It's because I, I won, because I have the nomination at this point. And you know, it was, I think, for someone like Trump, certainly an uphill battle to end up at the nomination of his party. But, you know, he found there was the political support for him, that he has won the most votes in the Republican primaries so far. And Sanders has not demonstrated that same level of political support, which is, you know, why I have more trouble with kind of the rigged argument and think I fall slightly more towards Ezra's side of um, – Trump was able to, from the outside, kind of get this groundswell of support. He doesn't have kind of the wonk class behind him yet, but maybe that follows at some point. You know, maybe it doesn't. But um, he was able to capture that even with the system kind of putting these barriers in there, suggesting the possibility of doing so in kind of a similar way Obama did it in 2008 with Clinton running. I can't believe I need to be the Sanders defender here. I think a particular area in which this is striking to me, and, and I guess this this will be my, my neoliberal sellouts defense of Bernie Sanders' whining, um, is really the role of these large national labor unions, right? Because I think a lot of what uh, you guys have said about this makes a lot of sense. But like if you ask on a day when there isn't a presidential campaign going on, right, like if you ask Randy Weingarten, like what is your organization? She will not say like I am the Democratic Party's like designated uh, representative to control the teacher unions. And then we have this other guy who runs the waterfront, right? She's <laughs> She's saying that she represents the interests of teachers as as a collectivity. And you see, in fact, that the way these organizations made their decisions, right, exactly as as Ezra said, right, like Hillary Clinton very assiduously courted these leadership groups who then, without a canvas of their membership or really without Without what I would even call like a pretense of like an open process of deliberation, we're just like, oh, yeah, hashtag I'm with her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I mean, to me, in part, this raises some questions about the deeper logic of Bernie Sanders' social democratic politics. Um, and, and I will say at the end that like the big problem with all of this process stuff from Sanders is that Outside the context of the Democratic primary, there is no question in my mind that the system is rigged against massive expansion of the welfare state, right? Like the the constitutional order of the United States was constructed by wealthy property owners who feared that popular participation in government would lead to massive income redistribution. So they tried to create a system that would make it hard to enact income redistribution. Subsequent centuries of research indicate that they chose pretty well, that the United States redistributes much less than most other countries, primarily because of its political institutions. Um, Sanders's entire campaign is premised on the idea that he has a mechanism that can overcome this problem known as political revolution, quote unquote, in which I I think he had described it like there were going to be people with signs near Mitch McConnell's window yelling at him and and it was going to make this happen. Um, I think that that is incorrect. 
I think that Bernie Sanders is seeing in the Democratic Party primary that like even a much, much lighter finger on the scales can make it really, really hard to do things and that um, rules and structures and system design matter quite a bit. But that would continue to be the case, even if he was the nominee, even if he was the president, right? Like you have to operate in the system that exists or you have to have a plausible theory of how to change the system. It has always been at the heart of Hillary Clinton's sort of bummer of a message. This kind of like, no, we can't um, kind of thing. Like, it sucks. It's a shitty slogan. Like, she lost in 2008. To, to be fair, no, we can't is not actually her slogan. Sure. I but, agree it would be a very bad one. But I mean, it, it is the message, particularly her like repost to Bernie Sanders. Yes, totally. It's like, sorry, no, none of that's going to happen. Um, but she's she's right, you know, and like what Bernie has been showing this whole time with this like, oh my God, it turns out that in New York, you have to be registered to vote in last October, like you do, you do have to be registered to vote last October. Like, I, I don't think it's a great system either, but like it is what it is. And you either have the tools to change it or else you have a way to work within it. What he has instead is like some viral content about how it isn't good. Well, and he has a lot of, uh, a lot of people fired up about this. I mean, something that I think is, is, True. One of the things that's very hard, I think, in a debate like this to to do well is to simultaneously be able to talk about the system as it exists and also like recognize it as valid that a lot of people don't like the system as it exists. I do not like the system as it exists. I think in this way, there's a really interesting contrast to be drawn between the Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama campaigns. Go back to 08. Obama is running against Hillary Clinton. Like in 2016, she also begins with a massive, massive establishment advantage, huge levels of endorsements. Everybody thinks it's more or less a foregone conclusion that she's going to win. She's up in the polls by, I think, 25, 30 points. Um, she's a bit more dominant uh, this year when it began, but 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 she was you know, really, really ahead in, then too. And Obama, like Sanders, runs on a message. It is fundamentally about the corruption and inefficiencies and disappointments of the political system. But he does something Sanders doesn't do, which is that he combines a theory of the outside game and the inside game. And so one thing Obama does, and, and I think this is one reason that I'm, I'm a little less sympathetic to the Sanders case here, is that he actually shows the system can be won over. He takes a lot of endorsements away from Clinton. He gets people like Ted Kennedy and John Lewis, who everyone expects. Would, would go to Clinton. He gets a lot of major unions like the AFL-CIO to sit on the sidelines until very late in the primary when they eventually endorse him. He really is able to disrupt Hillary Clinton's winning over the system. And part, and that's an important, in a way, part of his message. Like he actually says that he has a theory of how to make the system work. And that theory has to do with partially with mobilizing people on the outside, but partially with compromise, partially with listening, partially with being able to think up ways to reduce division and look at policy policies from, from a different perspective. And I think the critique Bernie Sanders would make of, of, of Obama is that that willingness to try to create a, an inside game approach to winning a corrupt, what Sanders would see as a corrupt game, ends up corrupting or at least trimming Obama's ambitions. And he, end, and, and he has you know, too many former lobbyists in his administration and he does not break up the big banks and healthcare does not have a public option. I think Obama would say that he you know, makes the best compromise he can with reality but ends up getting a tremendous amount of consequential legislation. Done. He makes the best deals. He makes the best deals. <laughs> right. But he does show like the coalition is more flexible than you might expect. Exactly. Like, one place this shows up a lot in 2008 is with women's health, where Narrell very unexpectedly, um, the pro-abortion rights group, endorses Obama over Clinton. And um, Planned Parenthood just holds off till the end of the primary to endorse. I think this was the first time um, that they ever endorsed anyone during the primary process that you see this women's health you know, space that generally you might expect to align with the female candidate, especially when she's the establishment candidate, essentially throw its weight, you know, in subtle and less subtle ways behind Obama, um, you know, even when it seems like, you know, starting off Hillary would have been the kind of establishment pick that that he was, you know, maybe Bernie Sanders would offer worse off for doing this, but able to break up some of these groups that, you know, would traditional, traditionally align with a female establishment candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And then and then I think that the, you see Bernie Sanders do something really different here in, in this primary where 
I think Bernie Sanders believes to some degree that that inside game is itself the problem. I mean, his critique of the system is more thoroughgoing than Obama's was. Obama's critique was about how people operate within the system. And I think Sanders' critique is much more about the system itself. And in some ways, it's a very inspiring critique. But the problem I would really say is that he is not offered a persuasive uh, account to, to your point, Matt, of how he will change that. And so I think that one one place I've had a lot of trouble with the Sanders campaign is that there's a lot I like in his diagnosis. And then I actually don't understand the, the, the political theory. I don't think it I don't think it fundamentally holds up. And I think that he's got a lot of people in a position now where what he is persuading them of is a kind of rejection. It's a sort of a, it, it's bordering increasingly on an anti-politics. And it's why it's so interesting what Sanders will do um, when the primary is over. There's a version where he actually begins to work on some of these systemic challenges. And you can see that a little bit beginning with the the people he's named the platform committee. And he's talked about, you know, being upset about, he he's, T- tends to be upset about <laughs> primaries that disadvantage him. So he likes caucuses, which are quite undemocratic, but does not like closed primaries. But, but you know, he could be really taking on things like money and politics and the filibuster and building a movement around them. Or he could lead a lot of his people to just say, well, fuck it. Like the system is corrupt. Good people are never going to make it in it. And, you know, this is a reason not to be involved. And I don't know which one he will choose, but I, I do think that that the the Obama Sanders contrast is really interesting in that way, and and it's why I think what Sanders did here was make a choice. Obama made a different choice and ended up winning over a lot of establishment support. I think Sanders ultimately does not want to play that game, but that's very again, like I just feel like that's very relevant to the kind of president he would be. It's not it's not a feature of the primary so much as a feature of his political approach and one that would have for better or for worse consequences in a Sanders White House. All right. All right. Time for some research papers? Yes. Or please. a research paper? A research paper. This one's a doozy. It's a it's a it's a, it's a methodological wonder in which the 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 narrow conclusion is is is, is pretty narrow, but it's but it's a really cool sort of experiment. Um, so this this paper is called Family Ruptures, Stress, and the Mental Health of the Next Generation. It's by uh, Petra Person and Maya Rossenslater. Um, and, and what they're trying to investigate here is a, a, a question that sort of people have, have thought for a long time. They've known that the stress hormone cortisol has uh, an impact on, on brain development in, in young kids. They, they've seen this. Um, so it seems like it should also have an, an impact uh, in utero on, on, on um you know, pre- pregnant women. Um, but it's hard to uh, design uh, methodologically rigorous experiments involving pregnant women. You can't uh, inject them with stress hormones and, and you really can't just like, let's deliberately have something awful happen to a random sample of pregnant women and see how that turns out, right? It's, uh, ethics are troubling. Um, so they use some um, a rich set of Swedish administrative data uh, to to look at uh, which Sweden has much more comp, uh, much more complete records of things. Gotta love than, that than, Swedish than administrative data. Administrative data is great, which uh, is is amazing on its own terms. But so they look at pregnant women who have had relatives die, and they're able to look at a, a fairly large set of relatives, not just parents, but like. Uh, other kids and spouses and like brothers and sisters so they can construct a a uh, whole like relatedness variable of the dead person and then they could do a um, discontinuity design and look at kids whose moms had a relative die like shortly after the baby was born versus shortly before um so you know you're really isolating the effect of the like pre-birth environment and then they also have data in, in Sweden that you can get on which prescription drugs people are taking years later and you can and you can match them up. So basically what they show incredible is incredible data actually. It really is. Yes, Very yes. good Swedish it's, administrative data. Swedish administrative data is fantastic. Um, so they show that at least in Sweden, if a relative of your mother's died uh, while she was pregnant with you, you are more likely to wind up taking um, anti-ADHD and, and anti-depression uh, medicines uh, later in life and that the closeness of the relationship between your mother and the dead relative is related to um, the likelihood that that you have here. Um, so on its own terms, that's obviously a finding of um, limited social relevance and also one that clearly has no policy implications because we already knew it was bad for people to die um, and try, try to avoid that. Um, 
But the the implication is that other kinds of stressful situations, including like the general stresses associated with living in poverty or having a shitty job or, or whatever else, are going to have similar effects. That this uh, death of a relative happens to be something that you can um, study in a in a well quantified kind of way. But the general phenomenon of like stress in life is something that we understand separately from the pregnancy situation. And now we're seeing a, a link to uh, you know, kids and and later life outcomes of of some kind. You know, in a way that's that's kind of fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, so so there's a broad, although hard to define, exactly what the implications are, and just a, a cool uh, methodological break. Right. I mean, I thought it was a really interesting finding, but almost like in a way a stressful finding about stress, where like you see this. And one of the things I wasn't clear on that you know obviously this is one paper and a largely body largely body of research, but basically we're talking about like one stressful event that's out of your control, the death of a relative. And one of the things I was a little bit curious about, you know, coming out of this, like how is that similar or different to like constant stress? Like is it this spike that's the thing that's happening? It was hard for me to know. I thought it was a really interesting finding, but also one where I kind of looked at it and was like, well, what do what do we do with that. Here's this like terrible thing we found. I don't know if it's as applicable to um, kind of like constant low level stress. Um, I'd be curious to see more research on that. But like, what do we do with this really kind of terrible thing that we find? Also, man, if I were a pregnant woman, I would not <laughs> want to know about this paper. Right. Like, exactly. you're, you're a pregnant woman and tragically your brother dies. <laughs> and then you have to sit there thinking about how you're hurting your child because you're grieving. Like, Often, I think the way the world ends up treating pregnant women in, in, in is just so fucking unfair. But I, I, I take your point, sir. I really like the question of, you know, how do you measure constant stress versus spite versus episodic stress? You know, that said, I do think that there are some reasonably clear policy implications here. Now, I don't know that we would want to go to them, but we really could do a lot to make people's lives easier when they're pregnant. And also, you know, I think we have good evidence that the beginning of childhood matters. So, you know, when they have young children, I mean, when you go back to the beginnings of Medicaid, you, you were dealing with a program that really was about um, pregnant mothers young and, and, and young mothers um, and uh, single mothers particularly. And... I don't think Medicaid should have remained, you know, specific to that group, and and it hasn't. But I do think there's probably a lot we could do to to make life easier there. Um, you know, you can imagine all kinds of, you know, anti poverty programs that are that are well targeted. You can imagine a lot more that we could do to generally for children. But what we do for children could begin with pregnancy, right? If we did things like the the children's allowances that are, are an idea you hear people talk about, that could begin when, when mothers are pregnant, doesn't have to actually wait for birth. And yeah, I mean, you get into questions of incentives and gaming, but I think most of those can be managed or or they're not as bad as, as, as just letting this go on. So completely agree with you. I, I feel like badly that this, that, that, that we are putting this uh, finding out into the world. But, you know, I also think we could do recognizing how it sounds so weird to say this, but it's so obvious, like recognizing how important the work is that people are, that women are doing for the country when they go through the incredibly hard experience of, of having a child, we could really do a lot more right. to support it. And it suggests a different like space. I think a lot of the debate we have right now is about like, um, like parental leave and like what yeah. you get after you have the baby. I think that's a fair enough point that, you know, it suggests a wider space for the policy debate that like also goes to the in, in utero pregnancy would make phase. a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah, and, and I, I should say, you know, some some context for this paper because obviously thinking of this as a finding about how like it's bad for your relative to die is, I think, a little unproductive. Um, but but uh, uh, there's a series of papers by by Clancy Blair and another related series of papers by by Johannes Haushofer um, that look at poverty and cortisol levels, right? And they just show that. Living in poverty is associated with increased cortisol levels. Um, some of that is is observational data that can be called into question, but there's some pretty good uh, experimental and, and quasi-experimental evidence from like weather shocks on peasants in Kenya. I mean, it, it's always difficult to get like a really, really, really on the nose experiment. Um, but it seems to be the case that like 
the sort of blunt force of getting some more economic resources can make your life less stressful, um, which, you know, seems intuitive. And that, you know, we're seeing here that the experience of going through the stressful situation of living in relatively deprived circumstances has a, an intergenerational uh, component. And the fact that the that the finding is, is applicable pre-birth, I think, is important, too, because one line, you, you don't see this argument made like above board in politics a lot, but in the sort of intellectual space, um, I see uh, a, a lot of people leaning on uh, uh, genetics and, and heritability findings about intergenerational transmission of, of poverty to raise doubts about possible solutions. Um, but it, it, it's worth noting that there are these non-genetic mechanisms of inheritance, of which uterine environment is is definitely a prominent and, and influential one. So, you know, what you're seeing with this finding and, and some other related ones about very early childhood environment and, and brain development are just ways in which, you know, relatively crude resource transfers, you know, could make life easier for people, which will then make life easier for their children, uh, so on and, and so forth, with possibly multiplicative effects, you know, over the the very long term. Uh, unfortunately, it well, it's not unfortunate, but it would take several generations for like really, really huge impacts to, to show up. Um, but in that sense, you know, it, it strikes me that the policy world has not fully come to terms with um, the the full scope of things that we know about biology, right? That that e economics and sort of economics influenced realms of the policy universe like to take a very sort of blank slate approach to, to human behavior and is very invested in like incentives, you know, and like levers and, and nudges and things like that and does not pay as much attention to like the, the raw material out of which people are, are crafted. Um, but there's like a bajillion findings about different sorts of biological uh, feedback loops either through these hormone causal mechanisms or through uh, like atmospheric contaminants and, and things like that. And, and the policy space, you know, targets these things. There's like a notion that we should not um, have pregnant women starving. So there's like a little program to help them get food. Uh, but there is not, I think, a lot of thoughtfulness in the design of those programs. Like, will this help people be more relaxed about their food security? Or is it going to be a crazy hassle to sign up, right? We have a lot of interest in creating crazy hassles because like, God forbid, one person like fraudulently obtain a quart of milk that she's not <laughs> truly entitled to. And and, you know, it's like when you think about, you know, it's a real trade-off, obviously. Like there is fraud in programs. Um, but when you're thinking about the, the costs and benefits of, of different kinds of, of program designs, understanding the role that stress plays in life, I think, changes the way you, you think about what's really important here. I think, well, I think this also becomes maybe one area you don't see as much debate about, you know, women who are pregnant versus women who have had kids is it becomes a little bit politically challenging for, you know, those who support abortion rights to be navigating this space where you see a lot of, you know, legislation by pushed by abortion rights opponents that kind of try and establish the fetus as a person. You know, there's, you know, a law Utah passed earlier this year that requires doctors to administer fetal anesthesia for late-term abortions, which abortion providers there say make the process quite complicated, in some cases impossible. So I think it is a somewhat challenging, I don't think, you know, prohibitively challenging, but it's somewhat challenging space for liberals to um, to navigate where I think there is on some sense, you know, a worry of um, encroachment of fetal personhood, this idea that, you know, has been pushed on the anti-abortion side of, you know, establishing personhood rights for the fetus, which would make abortion much more difficult to obtain. So I think this is one area policy-wise you do see liberals struggle with a little bit of, you know, how to regulate better programs for pregnant women and think about the fetus in utero and, you know, grapple with the fact that what happens in utero can matter for, you know, a child's entire life, but also, you know, get worried about going into that policy space where you have a lot of arguments about personhood and fetal rights. Yeah, it's a good weedsy point to end. Absolutely. On. That's it. All right. 
Do you think we got twice the content in two? I think it was pretty it was, dense. It was pretty it was dense. Good. A lot of weeds. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Pretty Thank you as always for tuning in to The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply podcast. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro, <laughs> uh, who, who's joined us uh, and, and we're excited to have. Um, and we will see you next week. Bye.